Okay, let's go ahead and begin. It is time to start. Thank you so much for coming to the class. I appreciate that. I want to thank a couple of folks. I appreciate Pepperdine. I appreciate Mike Cope and Rick Gibson for doing all the things that they do and Joella and the crew that they do such a fantastic job. If you've been down to Lecture Central, you've experienced just how, how kind everybody is and helpful everybody is. And so I'm really appreciative of them and putting together all these things that they do. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year, and I'm sure it is for a lot of you as well. Uh, we look forward to this so much. So my name is Matt Dabbs, and we're going to talk about uh, the intersection of psychology and theology and, and really a lot of ecclesiology, kind of how we think about church and church leadership and how we do church. Um, I started off in psychology, not in, in theology. Went to Harding, got a, a bachelor's in psychology, and went on to the University of Florida to work on a clinical psychology doctorate, PhD, got about halfway through that, and uh, after 9-11 happened, I kind of had a reframe of what I really needed to be doing, lost interest in that, and uh, decided to go into theology, went to Harding Grad School in Memphis, and got an MDiv, and uh, have, have kind of, throughout my ministry, it's been very helpful to me to have that psychological background and be able to think through some things from that perspective, and I want to I integrate some things in this class. Come on in. Come on in. I want to integrate some things in this class that I think you may find helpful in your church culture and your leadership culture and in your own personal life. Uh, this 2018 for me was one of those years that I was just ready for it to be over. Anybody else there? Uh, it was just a rough year. It was a rough, very rough ministry year for me. Uh, and it was a, just a very rough personal year for me, 2018. Uh, 2017, uh, my dad was not doing well. He had frontal temporal dementia and uh, he was doing very poorly. And so uh, December 26th, I was going for a walk. He had been in the hospital. We had to go back out of town. And uh, he had, he had uh, diabetes, dementia. He had a, a, a problem with his muscle tone. He couldn't keep his head up, so he was pressuring his lungs. He couldn't keep his oxygen numbers up. And so he wasn't doing well at all. And I got a call the day after Christmas 2017 saying that from my mom saying that he had, he had passed. And, uh, man, that made for just a really rough time. A lot of you have been through something very similar. It wasn't unexpected, but he really didn't want to die in that hospital. It was actually the same hospital he was born in and 81 years prior. And he made very clear to me, I do not want to die in the same hospital I was born in. And, and I would say, Dad, you have to keep your head up. You know, you, you can't breathe. You can't get your... He couldn't remember anything, you know, because of the dementia. So he couldn't remember to do the things he was supposed to do and uh, ended up taking... His life, and so I found myself in a fog. I found myself pretty depressed, down, grieving, which is very normal—nothing too abnormal, but but in a, not a good mental space. And then combine that with some ministry stress and and issues, and you kind of end up in a pretty hard spot. And so I kind of found myself um, not being there for my dad's death really bothered me. My brother walked in just as he passed. My mother was there, and it, it really troubled me. But I didn't really—it was not very conscious to me how troubled I was by the fact that I wasn't there for it that I missed it by a day. I left the day before, or two days before, not thinking, I thought he was going to come home and be in a hospital bed. And so I was very troubled by that. And so I, I found myself uh, trying to motivate myself because I was kind of in a funk. And I found myself watching uh, YouTube and trying to get motivated and, and watching various people on there. And, and I found myself in a little bit of Jordan Peterson there for a moment, you know, and he's doing his psychology of, uh, of, of personality lectures. If you've ever watched those, they're very good. And uh, he got into uh, uh, psychoanalyzing uh, Pinocchio, right? And, he, and this, I think this is in his Maps of Meaning, which I haven't read, but uh, in, in one of his psychology lectures on personality, he maps out Pinocchio, and he talks about how Pinocchio is trying to rescue his father 
from the belly of the whale, and he gets into uh, Jungian archetypes and uh, how this is a common thread throughout human history is uh, your father is going to die, and it's a very common thing for us somehow to want to go down in, into the pit and pull him out somehow, right? And, and so that really struck a chord with me, and I, I want to share um, some of the lessons that I've learned kind of working through some of that grief and how that applies to church culture and church context and leadership. So, uh, again, I hope this is helpful. It's kind of a, kind of a, a psychotheology, a psychotic theology or something. I don't know. So here's the other kicker. So my dad not only had dementia, he had OCD, very, very strong OCD. And so this went way back into his 20s. My mother thought it was super duper cute that when she would watch him out the window before she met him, she'd see him walk around his car and check all the doors. And she thought, oh, my, he's very responsible. You know, (laughs) little did she know, 40 something years of marriage, it would be like, oh, OCD is not very fun all the time. And so you had to know all the rules in the household. You had to know kind of what to do and what not to do. They're never written down, but you had to know, you know, like you don't put ice trays on the counter. Because if you put ice trays on the counter, one goes back on top of the other, and then what got on the bottom of one gets on the top of your ice. And it, have you ever thought of this? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you have a problem. <laughs> uh, you you lock the doors all the time. And see, my dad also worked for a high security clearance GS thirteen position in the government, which which really worked well with his OCD, because he had to lock everything down. Right? He was he was perfect for that job. I remember one time I walked out of the yard. We lived in the middle of nowhere. We lived on a, on a mountain, on a bluff. We had no neighbors, you know, much to speak of. I walked out the door one day, did something outside, came back, and he says, why didn't you lock the door behind you? Key locks and everything, right, both ways. He said, I was just out. I could see that what somebody might have got in the house. Check the house. You got to check the house. I go all through every closet, big 5,000-square-foot house, check every nook and cranny of that house, things like that. And so, I, you know, you think that's normal growing up because it's all that you have ever known. But it's when someone new comes in the house, a visitor, girlfriend, whatever, you know. Uh, when Missy, my wife, comes to the house for the first time, she's picking up on how odd some of these things are that I thought was fairly normal. There was one time when, after we were married, her parents came to the house, and uh, we came around the corner into the living room, and her dad was sitting in dad's chair. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> and we're like, get up! Because, <laughs> like, he might come around the corner. Like, we're anxious, right? Like, get up! Why? Just get up. you got to get out of that chair, right? There was one day that a, a worker came to the house, sat in Dad's chair in the kitchen, and Dad, when the guy left, I kid you not, Dad didn't say a word, walked in the kitchen, took that chair, took it out, sat it in the garage, never use it again, brought another chair back. So it's all, I'm saying that you know this was normal to me, um, but it's not normal, and it produces a lot of anxiety. And, and there's a whole codependent and mesh system that operates around this problem that you learn to deal with, that you, you, you learn to work through these things, and it's not until an outsider kind of comes in and see it. And I didn't realize that we had a codependent relationship. He had a problem, and we all danced around it and, and, and tried to make it work. And that's not just his problem, that's my problem, right? It's codependent. We're in mesh. We transfer our emotions and anxiety one to the other. And so when he's anxious, he's going to make sure I'm anxious. So that I, so, so when I do something out of the lines, I've created distance with him. He gets very anxious. He projects that onto me. It's enmeshment. And then I have to close that gap by being crazy. Check the house. The only way to make dad not anxious is to check the house, right? 
And so I have to go through these motions in order to close that gap. And, and a, a properly, healthily defined person would say, well, no, Dad, that's actually kind of not normal, and I'm not going to play into that. But the power dynamics are not in a good way. Same thing in our churches, by the way. And what I didn't realize was, was that I was perfectly being prepared for life as a minister in a church. Okay? This enmeshed, codependent system with power dynamic struggles and, and the works, it was all in my family growing up. Uh, and you know no other way to operate than that. Um, and so there's these, these perfectionistic tendencies. We have these in our churches. We have these in our church culture. Church of Christ culture has very much perfectionistic tendencies because we're the ones who have all the right doctrine. <laughs> right? But what's so funny about that was with my dad, uh, he, he would eat McDonald's relentlessly. And I'm like, Dad, and I'm not, this is no criticism on McDonald's, but I'm thinking inconsistency. You have some person who's 16 years old who, who you have never met <laughs> behind closed doors making your food. But if we come in our kitchen, you know, you're going to gripe if I set one thing on the counter and put it back on the thing. But he loved McDonald's. It's like, no, that doesn't happen there. Like, out of sight, out of mind, right? Uh, his, his office was very messy. We had to go through and clean up his office. He was kind of a pack rat and a hoarder. But you would think he wouldn't want that with the control mechanisms and things. But that was part of the control. So anyway, there were some inconsistencies with that and some things that were kind of glaring inconsistencies in the way that that operated. And that, that really, a lot of these things, if you kind of work through um, things like having to follow the rules in order to keep the peace. Uh, if you mess up on one little thing, it's going to blow up. You keep your opinions to yourself, right? You hide all elephants. And unity in the family system is all important, but it all hinges on doing it all one person's way, or you think the whole thing will fall apart. Does this sound like anything else other than my family growing up? Maybe you say, that sounds like my family growing up, but is it, does it sound like anything else, right? Sounds like church. Sounds like church. And so this is not a blame thing. I'm just describing so let me ask you this. What's the most anxious thing that's ever happened in your church? Can you think of an anxious moment? I'll share one while you're thinking about it. Uh, I remember sitting in church, my parents' church, and uh, there was a baptism. And this is a non-clapping church. And there's a baptism. The preacher's daughter stands up on the pew. She's like four, and she starts clapping. And I'm like, I'm sitting back there going, oh, she gets it. I'm, I, I'm like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm like 30. A minister visiting, I'm not, but I'm like, she gets it. But everyone's like, what is she doing? You know, we had a moment last Sunday where at the closing prayer, the guy who gets up to do the closing prayer says, he starts his closing prayer with, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? <laughs> and, and the guy next to me, I'm in the foyer waiting for its closing prayer. And the, uh, one of our deacons comes up to me and he says, do you know what's going on? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and, you know, there's something we're supposed to be anxious about that, aren't we? Somehow. That's supposed to make us really nervous because we're perfectionistic and there's a way we're supposed to do things. And if you don't do it, we get very anxious. And in order to, to relieve the anxiety, you have to close that gap somehow. An anxiety is all about distance, separation, and closeness, right? So in order to do that, we have to fix this. Uh, and so, um, so what's, anybody think of an anxious moment in church? It's okay if you didn't. We can move on through. Sure. I have been that person that went to a visiting congregation and clapped during the worship service, the singing. And it, it feels really strange. Yes. 
And I'm sure other people felt nervous about that. Why is this happening? Is this okay? This is not what we normally do. Uh, during communion, um, someone had forgotten or something where they forgot where the communion cups weren't prepared. And so when they opened it up, it was like... It's empty. <laughs> everybody was just quiet and they had a, a you know, man had to run to the kitchen, get a, you know... Yeah. yeah, that was like... <laughs> sure. I, I remember a time when, when uh, we decided to serve communion from the back. Mm-hmm. And I remember a brother got up, I'm standing in the foyer, and he comes storming out and he says, if this is the way we're going to do it, I will never come back to this church. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, sure. We had a member, he was a visitor at the first time, and then later became a member who would interrupt the preacher. Mm. As he's preaching, you start a conversation. Interesting. So, is this okay? <laughs> is this okay? This is not normal. And so we get into anxiety, distance, and emotional systems. And so we get this push and pull and this interplay. And, and so, so if someone messes up, it creates distance. Like all of a sudden, that little girl, the congregation has a distance with her, right? Because she's not doing it the way that you're supposed to do it. And that distance then creates anxiety that we then make every attempt possible to close that gap. And there's all kinds of unhealthy ways we do it. So you, you think of like a mom in a kitchen and Johnny's about to do something he's not supposed to and mom just screams. Because, hey, well, maybe that's a little dangerous, but I'm really frustrated. That's disrespectful or whatever, right? And, uh, and so she's actually transferring her anxiety onto him or her, right? Instead of just saying, hey, that's not a good idea and X, Y, and Z, right? And so, and so I grew up in a very fearful home. Everything had anxiety tied to it because if you're not doing it the right way, there's distance with my father and the only way to close the distance is to go his way because he's not going to come my way. And so he kind of has the family held hostage in a sense. Our churches kind of work this way a bit. Did you have a thought here, brother? Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember the first time I get, uh, but I realized that the East Coast church is really different than Western School. Yes, sir. And the first time I kneel down to pray on a Sunday morning, and I realized that the people start watching each other and say, what's going on here? But then, hey, that's why we, we bow down before God. Mm-hmm. But then Washington, D.C., it seems like they put God on their own way. Okay. And, yeah, and after that, one of the brothers approached me after, he said, brother, we don't do things like that up here. I said, well, you want to be better start doing it? Because that's what I'm going to keep doing. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. So, so he, kneel, he kneels to pray, and everyone says, that's not how we do things around here. That's a classic anxious statement. We just think that's a preference statement. That's a fearful, anxiety-driven motivator and leverager to get things back to the way I'm comfortable with, right? There's fear involved in that. And so so I I had to realize for my own self, and a side point here, I don't want to raise children who are afraid of the world. Mm -hmm. But we have allowed our churches to be fearful of everything without allowing them any space to overcome and to work with and handle their own anxiety, we all take it all off of them. Uh, I remember I was at a, working at a church. We had a school attached to the church. One of the, one of the teachers was a friend of mine. She was about to get fired. And I, and I knew the principal, and I knew her, and I, I literally triangulated myself into that, which was so stupid. I walked in, and I said, look, to the principal, I said, I, I can help you with this. What an idiot. I can help you with this. Uh, and, and just let me talk with her and stuff, because I, I, I could just see it was going to blow up. And I don't want anyone to be anxious. And so let me, I, I overestimate my own ability. Catch you here, Rex. I overestimate my own ability. And so, 
I jump in, and so what did the principal like assigns her like 15 counseling sessions with me? <laughs> and so now she's mad at me because she's got to come sit down and talk with me, and she's just saying stuff about the school, and there's nothing I can do. Like, you're going to say bad things about the school? Like, so now I'm in a bad way. I thought, that was, I mean, why would I purposefully triangulate myself? You got her in the school, and I triangulate myself into their emotional system. Mm. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a, it's a prideful, arrogant move, Right? And it's also a codependent move because I'm trying to save the school from having to deal with the stress of that. And I'm going to take it on my own self because I don't think they can handle it, but I can handle it. Matt can handle it. How foolish. But we do this all the time in our churches when people complain about something and we say, oh, no, I'll take care of that. That preacher will never talk about that again. Don't you ever worry about hearing something like that again. Not in this place. Don't worry about it. Don't. You can come back. You're okay. Pat, 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 pat. You'll be fine. And what we don't do is we don't allow people to grow and learn how to manage that gap, right? The gap between the person who did something that made me uncomfortable and where I'm at, there's now a distance here, and people have to learn how to reconcile that distance without triangulating an elder or a minister. And we elders and ministers are so codependent that we readily take that like, oh, yes, please give me your problems, and I will handle that for you because I'm that good. And that's, that's foolishness. Sure. In the story he just told, channeling Friedman uh, psychology, what he did is, is he redefined the relationship. Instead of playing into that fear, he said, well, then you better get used to it because I'm going to keep doing that. He, he took the ball and passed it right back. Yes. This isn't my problem. This is it's your problem. problem. Yes. So when you said, you know, if, you, if, my, if my kneeling or bowing down to God in prayer in this congregation makes you uncomfortable, then you're just going to have to get to know me better, and you're going to have to love me as you love yourself, you know. Um, and so, uh, so we get into it. I appreciate you mentioning Friedman. We'll talk a little bit about Friedman, Bowen, and, and Steinke here. Uh, and so, so why does a member criticize another member? Why does, why does member A criticize member B? We could say, well, they have a difference of opinion. Well, no, really, really a criticism, in my mind, is an attempt to create distance, to identify and create distance that then forces the person you have the problem with. So let's say person A has a problem with person B. Person A says, hey, you're all messed up, this is wrong, blah, 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 you're criticizing that, that person B, right? That's an effort to say, you're going to have to come my way. It's, it's not just I have a problem with you, I'm not just mad at you. Like I'm trying to force you back into compliance with my way of seeing things and doing things. So I'm going to create anxiety by complaining. I'm going to criticize you in order for you to say, you know what, what's easier? It's easier for me just to say, well, I won't talk about that anymore, bring that up in order to come back close with you, than it is for me to say, I'm going to do the work it's going to take and leave you out to dry for a moment for you to deal with the fact that you need to come my way some, Right? And we come all the way every time. And, it, and we do, I think we do that because, A, we overestimate our own abilities and, and are prideful in that sometimes even. And, B, we do not expect that the other people will be mature. But they've never been granted the opportunity to grow in their maturity because we've never allowed, our leadership never allows them to, to operate and live in that gap. We want to close that gap because they're asking us to close that gap. And they're triangulating. So, so this is at the root of our church unity problem, Right? We have a church unity problem because we don't allow people to differentiate each other and still have unity within our differences. We think, we think our unity problem is a theological problem. It's an emotional systems problem, right? 
It's not, it's not going to be a theological problem. Well, yes, it is, Matt, because it's, a, it's, a, it's about instrumental music or it's about, it's about emotional systems and processes that we cannot dialogue with each other without heightened anxiety that we're going to just blow up. And so somebody has to just give up and come all the way over to find unity. But the, and we talk about unity without uniformity and all that. What, that. what is that really all about is to say we need robust, emotionally mature systems in our church where the leadership is empowering and equipping people to embrace each other in that gap and to encourage people to, to find what is reconciliation. It's closing that gap in a way that it's like this. Um, it's not really me loving you if you have to become me for me to love you. Yeah. Right? So true, like, if I love my neighbor as myself, that's me saying, I love for you for who you are. You don't have to become me to do this. I, I, I'm, I'm in a conversation with some friends, and they're having just these marital uh, struggles and, and some control issues and things. And I, so I finally said to, to one of them, I said, you have to differentiate yourself as Friedman and Steinke and Bowen and all these guys. Differentiate yourself, and then she's going to have to deal with the real you. you keep, she wants you to be her. But... You're going to have to be you and her love you for you in order for this to really work out. There's enmeshment going on in codependence here. So, so our churches are very anxious places. Anybody? Aren't they? Yes. If you're in ministry, you're going to say, it's an anxious place. Yeah. And we sit in Monday's uh, elder meeting, el- Monday night, uh, review of Sunday morning service. Mm. <laughs> okay. Who preached? <coughs> well, I did. <laughs> the song leader's a volunteer. You've got no leverage on him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Who's got the power dynamic working, right? And so this is a church unity issue that's an anxious place. And so we, 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 we aren't transparent. We don't say what we mean. We don't share where we are theologically because somebody may get upset. They may leave. Why would they leave? Because they hate you or because they love doctrine so much? You think people leave because they love doctrine so much? They even read their Bible? I mean, think about this for a moment, right? They leave because you made them anxious. And you didn't come their way to fix it. You're saying, this is what I believe and why I believe it. I'm going to work through the verses and show you. And I, I don't agree with that. I'm gone. Well, you know what? The reason you're gone is because I just created space with, I didn't even create it. I just identified it. And you didn't have the emotional stamina to take the time to grow in your ability to love me and me love you in the gap to help resolve that anxiety. And so we're, we're perfectionistic because we, you know, we have it all right. And so this is why elders manage. Elders manage because there isn't anything to lead into because we've arrived and we're perfectionistic. Although it comes like with my father with a lot of gross inconsistencies because we know we're not perfect, you know. Um, and so to, cha- to change anything in our system is to create distance with people. This is why we have a change problem. We have a change problem not because of doctrine. We have a change problem because we have emotionally immature systems in our church that we disconnect um, the ability of people to resolve and reconcile their own issues by jumping in the gap for them and go, oh, no, 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 it's okay, this won't ever happen again. Please don't, please come back, please keep giving, you know, da, 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 da. It's like, you know, give them some space, let them be upset, and, and they're going to grow in this. So to, to change anything is to create distance uh, from the right way of doing it. And so uh, that creates a lot of anxiety, and people can need to learn to deal with that and live with that and grow through that. And so this is why elders are very reactive, because they're constantly being called on to close that gap. Does that make sense? Please close the gap for me. Close the gap for me. And when they do that, and when ministers do that, we are preventing them from having opportunity to learn how to close gaps. That's right. 
And so then we have whole congregations full of people who don't know how to close gaps, but only know who to go to to close gaps. And so then we can't change anything or do anything. And, and I'm going to say uh, that we really don't love each other well. Yep. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice he did not say, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simile, not a metaphor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. He does not say, love your neighbor who must be yourself. Isn't this how our churches operate? The only way we really have love for each other is if we all agree on these 50,000 things. What I'm really saying is, I'm only going to love you if you're just like me. But that's not what Jesus said to do. It's a, it's a simile, not a metaphor. And so us ministers, I'm not going to talk about elders, our, us ministers are very codependent. We are very enmeshed. We are helping profession people. We want to love people and help people and, and help people. It's like they come along and they go, I have a problem. My problem is this and it's with so-and-so. We're like, I'll take care of that. And we have a very high view of ourselves. I, I'm trained and I'm skilled and maybe you don't have all the training I have and you didn't get that counseling class with your MDiv and so I'm going <laughs> to prepare you for this. You should have audited that. You know, we have our class, our churches audit those courses, you know. <laughs> So us ministers are very reactive, and also because our jobs are on the line, there's a lot of leverage that's there, and our, our circles are all the same, our, our friends, our church, our spirituality, our job, you know, and many of us are in towns, you don't just go to the next church across the street, you've got to move and move your kids, and, you know, it's just gut-wrenching, and so, uh, you know, we, we're very codependent people, and we love to make people happy, we love to please people, and that means we don't like people to feel anxious, but what we're doing is not being loving. Like when we, when, we, when we bail people out of their anxiety, we're not being loving. And if we're in the helping profession, we're actually not helping. Because we've misidentified the problem. I've identified the problem as being, I must get you out of your anxious position to make you feel less anxiety. Where the problem was, you need to learn and grow and learn how to get along with people who are not like, just like yourself. And to love them well. And if we can figure that out, and if our leadership can figure that out and can allow people to live in that, that gap and force them to figure out how to close the gap without them just being like each other, we're going to have a much more vibrant future. I think this is our Achilles heel. And I, I've played into it. I grew up with it. I know it. Uh, I've lived it. It bothers me tremendously. And, and, I, and I still do it. A deacon comes up to me last Sunday morning. Do you know about this? And I'm like, huh. No. And I'm like, what does this mean? What's he going to do? Do I need to go down there and try to control it? Do I need to go make sure he knows X, Y, and Z? I, you know, because now I'm in that position. I'm triangulated with a member who's decided to do something different. And how it turned out was beautiful. What he did was amazing, that member. It was exactly what we needed. It was so different. And it was just perfect. And if I had jumped myself in that, oh, it would not have been the godly thing to do. It would have been an impatient leap into relieving congregational anxiety because they're seeing Matt walk down the aisle. And we're all anxious, but we know he's going to take care of this. Right? So it's going to be all right. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be all right. I'm walking down the aisle, guys. See this guy walking down the aisle? You worried anymore? <laughs> Not anxious anymore, right? Because he'll make sure this gets done right. You know what I did? I just stood there. I don't know what's going on. I'm not patting myself on the back. Inside, I was going, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but to him, I was like, I don't know. Watch and see. Oh, please be okay. 
So, so how can we truly love each other as God has told us to love each other if you're not even safe to be yourself in front of other people? How do people love the real you if they don't know who the real you is? You're just trying to get along. You're just trying to be, be just enough like them that they don't kick you out, right? So I love my dad, and, and I, I, I am and was codependent with my deceased father and my dealing with my grief and how I'm dealing with these things, right? And so I loved my dad, but I didn't always act in ways toward him that were actually loving by allowing some of these things. Now, the power dynamics make that difficult. And I love the church, and I love my elders, but I don't always act in such a way that is actually loving toward them. Because there's times I'd help try to bail them out of things and put out their fires, right? And tell them, oh, no, this is going to blow up. And I'm there to consult and there to help, and I'll share whatever wisdom that I have. But Jesus said again, he says, uh, which, which is the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the, the, the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean to love God with all your heart and with all of your mind? And how does that relate to loving your neighbor as yourself? Uh, and so First John chapter 4, Jesus, uh, John talks about, you know, if you claim to love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they haven't seen cannot love God, or who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not. Um, and so you have a system. You have God, people, and others. Yourself, God, and others, right? It's a system. So we work in systems, and I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time here, but if you go back to, the, to um, anybody ever read Peter Steinke, if you've never read Peter Steinke, get to Amazon right now and look up Peter Steinke, uh, uh, it's S-T-E-I-N-K-E, Peter Steinke, he spoke at ACU last year or two, amazing guy, uh, he has a book called Healthy Congregations, he has a, uh, I'll give you just one sec, Healthy Congregations, he has a book called uh, Congregational Leadership in Anxious Times, and a third book, which title is Escaping Me. Healthy Congregations, subtitle is A Family Systems Approach to Ministry, or something like that. And then he works off of a guy that Rex mentioned named Edwin Friedman, who wrote Generation to Generation. He wrote a, an amazing book. If you're going to read one book by him called A Failure of Nerve, it's kind of dense, but he talks about uh, systems in, in, in corporations, congregations, and synagogues, and leadership, and, and how we have... We have created a generation of leadership that does not allow people to experience anxiety and relieves them of that, and then we end up in these kind of messes. And so Murray Bowen is actually where all this came from. He wrote a book called uh, uh, Systems Theory and Clinical Practice, I think was that book, back in the 50s. And he, what he did was he recognized, he was working with schizophrenics, and he recognized that in order to treat schizophrenia, you actually needed to institutionalize the family to observe family dynamics. Because if you just treat the individual, but you don't treat the family system, then that person goes back into the same unhealthy dynamics, and then they never get better. I used to work in something called PCIT, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy. That was a, a, a parent training of child therapy. So we'd bring the whole family in, the parents and the kid, and we would train the parents through the, uh, a mirror and the bug in the ear, and we would coach the parents on how to, how to train their children. Because they go home with their kid. I don't go home with their kid, right? And so you have to change the system. And so uh, we're, the, the church is an organism, right? And Paul talks about the church as an organism, doesn't he? Doesn't he talk about it this way? He talks about the church. He, he, Paul even talks about the church as a family. Talk family systems theory. How do you treat a family? See, like if, you're, if you have someone who has a marriage problem, you never tell that person, go into individual psychotherapy, right? I mean, maybe never, but you, it wouldn't be usually the best idea. What do you say? Couples therapy. 
need couples therapy. You need family systems, someone who understands these kinds of things. And so, so here's what Bowen recognized, and this is what I'm kind of boiling all this down to. He recognized that people who had schizophrenia were poorly differentiated from their parents, often their mothers, but definitely still both parents. And it's not a blame game. This is just an observation. And so what he realized was, was that the people who, who had schizophrenia needed to properly differentiate themselves to say, you know, like, I'm me and you're you and we are not enmeshed and we are not codependent and it's okay for me to be different than you and you to be different from me because the parents were labeling their child as a, as a problem and they were just putting all this anxiety like, Johnny can't do this and Johnny can't do that. He's not like everybody else. Blah, blah, blah. And there's like all this anxiety that just makes everything worse. And so they had to fix that whole, that whole system. And, and, and train people to be properly differentiated children from their parents because there was a lot of anxiety transfer going on. And that kid, when they were spaced with the parent, that kid had to make up that gap. The parent wasn't emotionally mature enough to make up that gap, and so it's all on the kid, and the kid has to come over, and now there's all this psychosis going on. And so this all came out of Murray Bowen uh, in, in the mid-century, last, uh, last century. And, and so this has a lot of application to our churches, to our families, to our lives. Uh, it affects church culture and leadership in just some really dramatic ways. Uh, so, like, how, how does a leadership cast vision uh, if you're not properly differentiated as a leader? How do, elders, how do elders cast vision and maintain vision if they're enmeshed with the congregation? You can't. Because as soon as you say, church, we're going this way, and then five people say, that's a bad idea, and you're enmeshed with them emotionally, and you can't tolerate anxiety then you go, no, we're going to do this. If you're a minister, you've been there. You've said, hey, elders, I have a really good idea. Hey, I want to do this. And you're like, man, that's a great idea. Go do that green light all the way. You get into it for a few months. Just one, the, the, the least emotionally mature person in the room of 500 people. How, how emotionally immature can you be of 500 people? Right? That's all it takes. And they go to the elders and they say, I don't like this. And they're like, don't worry about it, it'll never happen again. We've never done it this way before. Don't worry, it'll never happen again. What they're really doing is not saying, is it a good idea or a bad idea, or should we go this way or should we not go this way? They're saying, that leader is saying, I am emotionally immature enough to blow up the whole plan to make sure you don't feel anxious about this. So let me take that off of you to make sure you don't have a problem with this, because we don't want people with problems around here. Did you just solve anyone's problem? How do you solve the problem? Hey, stick with us for a while. Watch and see. Sorry you're anxious. Here's why we're doing it. But the, often the reason that doesn't happen is because the elders actually don't share the vision of what's going on. You shared the plan, but they're like, well, yeah, go do that. <coughs> and so when the problem arises, they're not like on board to help defend it because they're like committed to the vision, right? Um, so let me, let me bring up a, another really important set of verses here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, when Paul talks about the, the, the church as what? Body. As the body. A well-differentiated body. And this is so key to enmeshment, codependency, and self-differentiation. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them, and everyone is the same God at work. So when we get differences with each other, what does that create? Differences create distance. distance. What does distance create? Anxiety, right? But what does Paul say? He says, this, but, but God is the one who made the body different. God is the one who made the parts different. We're in an all-out effort to make sure we're all just alike, so no one has to be anxious about who's got what and what's going on, and who's dot, 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 dot. That's what was going on in Corinth. Go back to chapter 1. Who do you follow? Apollos, Paul, P Peter, 
Jesus, whatever, right? Go to chapter 11 at the meal, Lord's Supper. Who's going first and who's got too much and who's rich and who's poor and who's a slave and who's free? Da, da, da. Like they, 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 they have all this difficulty going on and they're poorly differentiated and their anxiety is just going every which way. And he, so in, four, in, in 12, I think he's trying to help them with this. And so there is a diversity in the body and God purposed it that way. He says later for its own good, good for us to be different. So that means, that means the goal is not to be the same. The goal is to be different, but deal with our anxiety in that difference. And to learn to be emotionally mature enough to close those gaps so we can reconcile with each other. So he is highlighting different gifts, different service, different workings, but same spirit, same Lord, same God. That's Trinitarian. The Godhead wants the church to be unified under Christ, but to be diverse in its gifts and functioning. Our human nature is to say, once you say diverse and different, we have a gap. And the only way, if I'm the immature one, for you to close the gap with me is for you to give up and come my way. But what we have to do, to your point, brother, what was your name? Andre. Andre. Oh, was, was when you talked about kneeling and people having a problem, is to say, look, this is biblical. This is God's not unpleased. We got the long lanes, but. You know. It's okay. So, you know, this is just how we're going to have to be. And you're going you're gonna to have to come to grips with this and come to terms with this. Um, and, and so we've, anxious systems focus on differences rather than on commonalities. And the commonality is it's the same God who designed it to be this way. And, and I think he designed it to be this way because this is truly what love is. If God makes one body of one part, it is really easy to love that. It's really easy for me to love you if we're all an I. Right? But if we're all different, then I'm forced into having to figure out how to love you even though you're not just like me. It's very egocentric. Right? It's for me to only want to love you if you're just like me. And that's what he gets into here in just a moment. You know, a lot of times when someone does something that we're not used to or don't like, we try to use the scripture that talks about offending someone. But Weaker brother. A, yeah, yes. and, and there's a difference between offending someone mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. don't like what they're yeah. doing. There's a big difference. Huge difference. And anyone who actually uses a weaker brother argument, in my mind, is just not a weaker brother. Mm-hmm. If you're using that to leverage a position, you're not actually in a position of weakness. Because mm-hmm. I'm using scripture in order to, to prop up my position in a, in a, in a posture of strength. Mm-hmm. I'm actually now the strong one because scripture is backing my position because I'm the weaker brother. Now you've got to come my way. That's actually a very... Because we think of all these very doctrinally and very clinically, exegetically. If I can get you to think of anything in this class, all of this is laced with emotional systems and processes in our church leadership, in, our, in our, the way we read the Bible, the way we do church, uh, everything else. And so, so uh, we've had perfectionistic tendencies, and those have defined us, but they've not been good for us. Those have not been good for us. Uh, and so we're gonna, we, we don't have room for people to mess up. That's bad for us. Let them mess up. My New Year's uh, sermon in, in 18 was fail this year. Just fail this year. Just go do something and fail at it. And I'm not saying just get it out of the way. I'm saying, like, try really hard at something new so that, like, you're at least out there trying to do something. Maybe something great will happen. But if you're so afraid of failing at it, because that's our culture, like, that would be like me in the house with Dad. If I mess up something, it's going to be a real problem. I'm going to have hell to pay. I'm not saying dad was an ogre. I'm not saying he was abusive. But, like, I was a very sensitive kid. He, like, raised his voice, and he knew that's all I needed. You know? And that's how it works in church. Somebody just raises their voice, and that's all they need. But we're not going anywhere. 
going to go in, are we going to go anywhere when all it takes to make a new plan is for the least emotionally stable person in the room <laughs> to complain about it that sets a new course right they're actually setting the direction the church should never have the direction set by the most immature emotionally immature person in the room ever the best thing for that person is to be anxious and deal with it and if they can't deal with it they need to go I'm going to say this, but I don't mean it. They're going to need to like go to some church that will let them be enmeshed, I guess. Right. Until they can find some place where people will actually let them work on it. Uh, and so we can... Um, uh, I want to boil this down because we're kind of getting close. Okay. So let me... God, you think about God, and I want to get back to 1 Corinthians 12. God is the only perfectly differentiated, non-enmeshed being in, in existence. Right? Even in the Trinity, we see some variety. But it ne- never creates distance. God is not anxious about the diversity within the Godhead. Like we are. He doesn't operate like we are. There's nothing you can do that makes God anxious. Amen. Churches operate like God's really anxious. <laughs> like at that closing prayer, like, God's really anxious. Wait, wait, I know we've never done it this way before. I'm going to do something different this morning. God's really anxious. No, that's egocentric. Who's really anxious? I'm really anxious. Own it. Own it, right? Uh, and, so, and there's never a time where God will transfer his anxiety to you because he's not enmeshed with you. God's not so anxious. He's like, I'm so anxious, I'm so anxious. I must give my anxiety to Jim. Now I feel better. He's just not like that. In fact, he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on me. Let me deal with it. And I don't think he means that in the sense of like, so that you don't have to deal with it and grow and be emotionally mature. I think he's saying like, if you're really that worried, just trust me. I'm helping you. Let's work on this, right? In all the 101 others in the New Testament, there's not a single one that says transfer your anxiety to other people. Uh, take on the anxiety of your brothers and sisters, right? There's no, no place that does that. And so, so in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we're called to have the mind of Christ, who is the most perfectly differentiated, non-enmeshed person who has ever lived. And Jesus was constantly around people who would evoke anxiety in others, right? Yeah. Tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all this. And what did people do when Jesus was around people like that? They He's creating distance. By who he's around, and what are they trying to do? Bring him back in line. By doing what? Creating anxiety. Who are you to hang out with people like that? And what does Jesus do? Sick need a doctor. I'm going to kneel. I'm sorry. Sick need a doctor. Deal with it. Hey, I'll even tell you a parable and I'll put you in it. (laughs) You know what? I'll let you be anxious. Do you find yourself in that, that prodigal son story? Deal with it, <laughs> you know? So Jesus is not enmeshed. Jesus is not anxious. And so in, in 1 Corinthians twelve seven it says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. This is what we don't understand is we think our differences make us anxious. He's saying, no, your differences make you better. So, so if you're anxious about it, own it. If you look around and see someone different than you, and you're like, I wish this, or I wish that, or why did they get this, da, da, own it. Deal with it. God just acted differently toward them than he did me. But he acted differently toward him and me for our good. And I must love my neighbor as I love myself. Not because he is myself. 
And so the Spirit gives the message of wisdom and knowledge and faith and healing, but it's the same Spirit, same Spirit, same Spirit, same Spirit, and the work of the same Spirit distributes each of them just as the Spirit determines. The diversity in the body is exactly how God wants it for our good. So if we're going to love the body of Christ, the church, we're going to have to learn to love those who make us anxious, right? So people who are like us, people who are like us don't make us anxious, right? I'm I'm talking about a lot of different demographics when I say that. People who are like us don't make us anxious. And this is why we try to make people like us, not, not to like us like I like you, to make people be like us, to lower our anxiety level. Because once you're more like me, I feel more comfortable with you. And then I don't have to think about that. And that's a real, a real problem. So let me read this from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 19. Just as a body, though one. Wait, before I read the rest. Listen for this self-differentiation and enmeshment deal. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, there is non-differentiated yuck, right? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? And I'm going to add to that, where would the love be? If it was all just one part, where would the love be? Because I'm only loving, if, there's, if we're all the same kind of part with the same kind of function, I'm only loving you because you're just like me. But that's not really love. I'm only loving you because you don't make me so anxious to not, as to not love you. But that's not really love. What love is in the body is me loving you even though we're different. That's a challenged kind of love. That's a real kind of love, right? And so it's, it's one body of many parts. And so there's no enmeshment here. It's the foot and the hand and the eye and the ear. They're not enmeshed. God properly differentiated each one. So this is Edwin Friedman's um, illustration as he talks about. He talks about cells in the body and healthy cells and non-healthy cells and how cancerous cells are, are uh, ill-defined, right? They're ill-defined. So like for you to be you, you have to have properly organized, differentiated systems in your body, digestive system, circulatory system, respiratory Like every system and cell in your body is properly differentiated. This fits perfectly in with 1 Corinthians 12, right? And so, so if when, when your cells get improperly differentiated, their cell walls are not right and things go in and out that aren't supposed to, and then things start working improperly within our bodies. And that, that, that's kind of like we want that. In our worst human nature, we want to be improperly defined and enmeshed with each other because then I don't have to, I don't have to own uh, the source of my feelings. I'm just letting you dictate it, and I'm kind of, I seem like I'm off the hook. And then we just get it anyway. We get enmeshed. So I'm saying a lot of things maybe over and over. Um, it's taken me like a lot of repetition to like get what I'm saying. Okay. Like a lot of years of like working through. So like there's several things I'm going to say several times because I want you to come back to that and hear that. I'm not just like forgetting what I said. Okay. Um, so we're all in just the right spot. We're all in just the right spot. Uh, so so um, Jesus isn't anxious about his body. So why are we? It's his. It's his body. 
Jesus is not anxious about his body. Why are we? Uh, you know what we do instead of being anxious about other people? We'll say, well, they're not, they're not of us. They're not Christians. Therefore, I don't have to be anxious about that anyway. Well, hey, if they're not Christians, you should be more anxious about that. But really, I'm just saying that to, to not feel anxious about our differences. What do I really think about this group or this group or this group or this group? Well, I'll just say they're not Christians. Why do I just do that? Because I don't want to be, feel that anxiety about thinking through like what's what and what's most important and what unifies us. So this is our problem with being more ecumenical. We have a real differentiation problem of, of the idea of like we can be a differentiated body of Christ with other bodies that are also differentiated, non-enmeshed, and yet still in the body because they're an ear and an eye and a nose and a leg. But we think they should all be an eye. That's like Church of Christ sectarianism. We want everyone to be an eye. And all we can see is the eye. And we don't want to deal with the fact that there's other parts, right? And so uh, we have made our aversion to change a theological issue. But it's an emotional systems and processes issue. It's an anxiety and leadership issue, right? It's God who gives the gifts. He differentiates everything. We need to respect that. We need to respect that. It's, uh, it's, it's good for us, okay? All right. So we don't want to be enmeshed. We want to be differentiated, but we don't want to be distant from each other, right? And that's a really hard balance. And so what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13 after he says, you are the body of Christ, is uh, he talks about love and about how really love is going to help us with these things because although we're a diverse body that's unified through Christ, we still have to love each other in spite of our giftedness. That's why he says if you speak in tongues and if you have the gift of prophecy, and a lot of you already know this, but We've, we've often read 1 Corinthians 13 out of context and marriage and weddings and stuff, but he's going right through what he does in 12 and 14, which is talk about spiritual gifts and diversity in the body, and he applies love into that. Even though all these other things pass, love is going to hold all these things together. And so what do we do with all of this? Uh, how do we love God with all of our mind? How do we love our neighbor, not because they are ourselves, but like we love ourselves? What do we do with all this? And, and so I think the first thing we have to come to grips with is John 5, 4, where Jesus is at the, at the pool and the, the lame man is there and he asks them this penetrating question that is the most obvious question in the world, but it's not obvious at all. Yeah, he says, what he said, you said it. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Yeah. Do our churches want to get well? You know what? If you want to get well, you're going to have to be anxious. You will not start hand, keep handing your anxiety off to other people for them to deal with it. If you want to get well. If you don't want to get well and you don't want to have a vibrant future, you, you know, then just keep handing your anxiety off to people and let them keep accepting it and never grow. Great. Do you want to get well? We need to want to get well. Uh, and that's going to take us raising our anxiety tolerance levels. That's going to take our eldership, our ministers, raising their anxiety tolerance levels. The only way forward. I, if I had one message to share to the whole Church of Christ in one shot, this is it, guys. This is it. I'm not going to Ephesians 5 or whatever. I mean, like, this is the talk, okay? Uh, do you want to get well? And so we have to have leaders who get comfortable with letting other people be anxious. But the only way they're going to do that is if a leadership understands that that's what's best for them. We don't think that's what's best for them. Because we watch them stew and watch them be anxious and we're too afraid of what they're going to do. They're going to jump ship. They're going to get out of here. They're going to stop giving. Never, we never say that, but I mean... There's a lot to that. And so we're trying to get to them as fast as we can to take it off their plate. And they're like, oh, good, I can trust those elders. They don't let me be anxious. 
No, you trust the elders because they have a godly biblical vision that they are pursuing no matter who complains. Who do you respect? Who do you trust? The guy's just going to handle you with kid gloves and hope you're not upset all the time? And let the church go whatever way you want to complain about? So we also need leadership who allow people to find their own resolution to conflict. The leadership who says, I don't have to be the one to fix it. Going back to that school church thing. I should have never said that. She got let go anyway. I made. I mean, now uh, she dropped me off Facebook. I never talked to her since. Okay? We were friends. Why did that happen? Me? Was it her? No. It wasn't her. I jumped in. The helper. We're not always helping. We try to please people. And we, so we have to have eldership, leadership, ministers who don't transfer anxiety, don't receive anxiety. I was talking to a lady one time, and she was really poorly differentiated, and she was just so depressed and so anxious, and, and she had so many issues, and, uh, and she, she was so codependent. And, and, I, and, and I just had like a Kleenex box sitting there because she was, she was crying, and, and, uh, and I said, here, let me just hand you all my, pardon my French, hand me all, let me hand you all my crap. And she took the Kleenex box. And I said, no, 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 let's try that again. Let me just hand all this to you. She took it again. I said, no, this is like all my junk. This like represents everything bad and everything negative. And I'm trying to like hand it to you and say, please, you handle it for me because I, I'm out. She took it again. I said, no, you don't get like, this is the problem. I said, when I try to hand it to you, I want you to like knock it out of my hand. <laughs> said, I'm not taking that. I'm not taking that. So she, she kind of did. And I said, no, doing this again. <laughs> When I hand this box to you, you knock it out of my hand, and you say, I'm not taking that. And she did. you got to stand up for yourself. You don't have to take that. Why do, you, why, do you, why do our elders have to take that? We should encourage them. I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. We should be educating, informing, encouraging. When you see them, like, redirect someone out of a triangle to another person, like A goes to B, and you see them redirect that, like, someone complains to them, go talk to that person. That's, like, called the Bible, right? Matthew 18. Uh, elders, I saw what you did there. Yes, more of that, please. Thank you. Like, encourage those things. Really encourage those things. Um, so, so we also need leadership that operates out of vision and principle, not out of reactivity. Like, reactivity is just enmeshment, right? Uh, and, and so I want to read this line from, from Friedman, Edwin Friedman, Failure of Nerve. Excellent book. Hard read, but excellent book. He says, uh, he's talking about leadership culture in North America, and he says, a regressive counter-evolutionary trend in which most the most dependent members of any organization set the agenda and where adaptation is constantly toward weakness rather than strength. That's our culture. We're always playing into the weakest one, thus leveraging power to the recalcitrant, the passive-aggressive, and the most anxious members of the institution rather than toward the energetic, the visionary, the imaginative, and the motivated. And this is what kills ministers more than anything. Because you come out of graduate school and you've got a vision, you've been around spiritually minded people and mentors who devoted their life to serving God and training people to be spiritually minded people, and they get into an institutional, reactionary, enmeshed, codependent, non-differentiated leadership culture and they have vision and purpose and drive and energy, and they're 24 years old with a master's, and they're ready to go, and it's like, bam! Nope. You know why you can't do that? Because Sister Sue, Sister Sue is going to be really upset. And she's been here a really long time. Well, you know what? Maybe you should go talk to Sister Sue. And, and I've even had leadership sometimes just make stuff up. Well, you know so-and-so is going to be really upset about that. Oh, have you talked to them? No. 
but I know he's going to be really upset about that. I think you should go talk to We know he's going to be really upset about that. That's not going to happen. Okay. You want me to have dreams and vision? Pursue it? You just killed that. I guess she's in charge. I guess he's in charge. Good to know. I'll start consulting him. You know, I mean, if I'm going to find a way to go, should I go see him first? You know, so I mean, I'm being facetious. You know what I mean. But, but let me say this. We need to love our elders well, right? We need to love our elders well. They need to know that. We're not like, uh, we, we're not, we should not be at odds in like, in like aggressive, even passive aggressive relationships with our elders. That's not loving them as, as I love myself. Uh, and so I'm going to, I've got more notes here. Um, uh, you know, I was going to say, I like, love your elders, you love yourself, love your ministers, you love yourself. I mean, there's some things we can do. But let me, let me just open this up for just a couple minutes here. I've just shared a lot. So let me hear so, from you. Um, so would you say that the pastoral work is helping people mind the gap? And, and to, first of all, identify it, identify their anxiety, and then help them. First, I mean, sometimes they can't even get to problem solving unless they realize that how anxious they are. Yes. Yeah. So people identify their problem as either a doctrinal slash biblical yeah. or um, tradi- it's either tradition or, or doctrine problem. They, that's what they think the problem is. Mm-hmm. But we have to help with it's called like metacognition. Mm-hmm. Like why are you thinking what you're thinking? Mm-hmm. And why you're thinking what you're thinking is because you're upset, yeah. you're anxious, and you're trying to get it back. It's not really even about the Bible. Mm-hmm. That, that may be in that conversation somewhere, mm-hmm. but until you deal with that reactivity and that anxiety, there's not any Bible discussion. Right. And so I think once you get through those processes, you actually can help people see, like, oh, I don't really have as much problem with that as a, as a thought. I was just really concerned. And, and sometimes that concern is so j- legit because we haven't communicated well where we're going. And so, like, well, that's a slippery slope. And then what's next? What's, tell them where you're going. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. Well, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure, Rex. So, so when you're uh, dealing with someone, anxiety comes, and it's a, this is my problem, the, the question we've got to, the transition we've got to make is going from asking, what do you want me to do about that? Yes. To, all right, what are you Yes, and for the recording here, let me just say Rex just said that we had to change our, our response to people from what do you want me to do that back to what are you going to do about that. That's extremely mature. Very well, what's the differentiated thing? Like, mm-hmm. I know who I am, and you're trying to give me this, but that's yours. Mm-hmm. This is me, that's you, that's not mine. Mm-hmm. That's yours, you got it. I will help you, I will advise you, I will encourage you, right? Like, I will do the things I, that's helping give you perspective. I'm not going to fix it. That's not mine to fix. And somehow us ministers think like every problem is ours to fix, or the elders think every problem is mine to fix. And that's just that's going to be a problem. Isn't there some <clears throat> level of immaturity in a person that says, I'm going to do something that makes people uncomfortable, regardless of whether it makes them uncomfortable too, though? I mean, is there a, a, a sharper edge on the other side? Well, no, I think that you, you, if you're making people uncomfortable because you're principle-driven, biblically vision, have a vision, uh, and it's been well discerned through spiritually minded people and you're communicating to the congregation where you're going and that, that's a different animal than just you know this morning I have an edgy me- message because I want you to remember it and I want to you know I want a bigger audience or something and I'm going to broadcast this everywhere and so I'm going to be extra edgy this morning to make you uncomfortable that's a whole the intention right. mm-hmm. I think the intention there makes a big difference right? 
Do you feel like our like consensus model of leadership <coughs> makes us more susceptible to this problem? Like the way that publishers typically function by consensus, do we is are we kind of set up to fail this way? Is this um, just our so he's asking uh, if our consensus model of leadership makes this worse. So, so the same thing that happens in the congregation, the least anxious person, the most anxious, least emotionally mature person running the show, then can map itself over to these five or seven or nine or whatever odd number of elders that you have, right? Uh, but So what I would say is I don't think it's the consensus that makes that worse if you have well-defined spiritually mature people. But because you have a number of them, and there's going to tend to be, I mean, somebody's on the lowest number on the emotional maturity level in that room. But if they're all a good number, they're all fairly mature and differentiated. I don't think that the model necessitates that if you have people who see things from that perspective. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, sure. Um, so, you, and in regards to figuring out or displaying or relaying your vision, you have an idea of what you want to do. But how do you get them on? What, what does this, the structure look like of relaying verbally what your vision is? Right, and that'd be a long answer. I mean, and that would be very situation dependent. It'd depend on what the vision is. He's asking, like, how do you really relay, communicate your vision uh, broadly? I mean, that, that's a long okay. discussion. I wish I had time to kind of do no, that. But, totally get it. Yeah, okay. Sure. Um, so, a couple of things. I'm a children's student minister, and the anxiety level uh, for students is just like, out of control, mm -hmm. you can read the New York Times, whatever. And so it is something that people are bringing in more to the congregation than even, I think, the way it used to be before. Can you speak to maybe the role trauma plays into this? And I'm thinking specifically of trauma of like churches who go through a really difficult time, a fracture or a split, a lot of infighting. Mm -hmm. And then in order to keep the peace, we don't we don't, in order to not go back through those trauma yeah. waters, we find the baseline of what's acceptable to everybody. Right. So the reason that you're back in that situation is because you never dealt with the underlying problem the first time. Mm -hmm. Right? So, um, uh, so churches are going to split because you never dealt with those things the first time. Otherwise, if you, dealt, if you were well differentiated and had a good leadership and vision and everyone knew where it's going, even if I don't agree with all the ins and outs... Uh, it's gonna, you're gonna have a lot less division as far as physically people leaving and going. So I, th I, think, I think that, so it's called homeostasis, which is maintaining the same state, yeah. mm -hmm. which is like, so, so hey, remember, oh, we, we sense some, some anxiety here, like we don't wanna go back through that again, mm -hmm. and so we're gonna appease people even more. But that doesn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. But that's the trauma of the leadership. That's, that's the, what you talked about, and I really hope you write a book. This is, I mean, this is an excellent <laughs> class. You've done an amazing, amazing uh, work here. But so much of this power differentiation, like I understand elders and leadership being afraid of the mob coming after them. Yes. So they, like, if this one person is the beginning of the wave, if we can make them quiet, yeah. then the wave will be yeah. quiet. But what about if actually the emotionally immature people are the, are the leadership. Yes. And yes. it, it can be topic specific, yes. right? Yes. You can have somebody who is like totally great, a group of people totally great in leadership on this yes. one thing, how they manage money for whatever. But when it comes to, I don't know, what the youth minister does, right. everybody freaks out. No, I'm um, just, uh, we're gonna have to run here. Yeah, uh, let, me, let me just say that I th my, my opinion off the top of my head is 
that if the church, you can't have codependency without two parties, okay? So if the church is emotionally immature, I think if you look at the leadership, you're going to also find emotional insecurity. Because if you have a really well-differentiated leadership that's been there for a while and they've been helping people work through their stuff, you shouldn't have an emotionally unstable congregation, right? So it would be really weird to have an emotionally immature congregation, but like, the elders are like locked down tight on differentiation. So, uh, so let me mention here, it's time to go. There's another class coming in. Uh, let me mention again, Edwin Friedman, Failure of Nerve, awesome book. Peter Steinke, Healthy Congregations, A Systems Approach, and Leadership, uh, Congregational Leadership in Anxious Times. Uh, at, I, I'm with wineskins.org. We are writing some on this. I've in conversations this week with people about pouring some more re- resources into this kind of conversation. And uh, we'll be putting some stuff on the YouTube channel, too. And I'm not trying to self-promote so much as, like, that content's coming. Like, more content like this is coming to those platforms. So, like, if that interests you, uh, then I would love for you to go. And there's several videos on the Wineskins YouTube channel right now that deal with some of these same topics from different angles than this today. So thank you for being here. Appreciate you. That's really good.